0: So, here we are once again at the eleventh chapter of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith, as it has been called, and as I think I pointed out, you know this is this is one of those chapters that we could we could literally spend months and months going through it because of all of the different people that are referenced and all of the different stories, uh, but obviously that is you know that's not our intention. It wasn't really even the in, the intention of the author. Uh, the author is just wanting to uh, kind of rapidly bring before the minds of his readers uh, the lives of of those who preceded them, the lives of those who lived by faith in previous generations, in order to spur them on to uh, perseverance. Because remember, the the context here is that the the people who are the original recipients of the letter are people who had uh, put their faith and trust in Christ, made a commitment to him, and were were following him and serving him. But because of difficulty, because of what they perceived to be a delay in the fulfillment of the promises of God, because of persecution that that had arisen, they were now uh, considering Drawing back from or turning away from their commitment to the Lord, and so the author, you know, many times over with uh, various exhortations and encouragements and even warnings, you know, he he's telling them that you need you you have need of perseverance so that after you have done the will of God, you can receive the promises. And so that that's what he's doing here. He's uh, encouraging them through. Reminding them of believers in previous generations who who persevered through um things that you, you know they 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 couldn't see the the end from the beginning uh, in some cases they persevered through times of great difficulty and affliction but they they held fast to their faith and as a result they were blessed and he's saying to them you know this is this is what you want to do. You want to do just the same thing uh, that we've seen people do in the past. He went all the way back to Abel, and to Enoch, and to Noah, and then he focused on Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now he comes to Moses. And, and like with Abraham, um, he takes a little more Time with Moses, or he maybe uh, develops it a, a little bit more than he does. You know, most of the other ones are just sort of a mention, but with Abraham, he goes into detail. With Moses, he goes into detail. And, and you know, understandably, because Abraham and Moses were just, you know, they were huge figures in the history of the people. So a little more detail with them. So picking up with Moses, he says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the, of the king's command. So the first thing to note about Moses is not, even though it's by faith Moses, uh, but really it's the faith of his parents that uh, the author's referring to here. His parents, Instead of complying with the edict of the king, which was to destroy their own children, uh, his parents hid uh, him. The parents of Moses hid him and and protected him. They didn't fear the wrath of the king. Rather, they feared God. And so this was an example of their faith. They exercised faith by trusting in God. Now, Moses, when he became of age, then he had the opportunity to exercise faith himself. So when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God uh, than to enjoy uh, the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So let's just look at what it says here for a moment about Moses specifically. So... At a certain point, we know Moses was 40 years old, and at this stage in his life, he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's part of the royal family. Some people speculate that he could have himself possibly been in line to become the Pharaoh. We don't know for sure, but that's a possibility because he's part of the family. Uh, But yet at this time, and under these circumstances, and with all of these privileges, Rather than holding on to that, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. So Moses makes this conscious decision to step away from the privileges that he enjoyed as being part of that household of Pharaoh and to identify himself not just with um, the common people, but he identifies himself with an afflicted people he identifies himself with the Israelites who are, you remember, they're slaves in Egypt. And so how did Moses do that? How could he step away from something uh, that was so personally uh, comfortable and uh, potentially beneficial for him and and identify himself with this, this group of people who were afflicted? well we 're told here that he did this because he looked to the reward Moses he looked beyond the present circumstances he looked beyond uh, even just his own lifespan. He looked basically to a day of um, a day of judgment. He looked to the fact that one day he would give an account of himself to God, and he knew that the most important thing was to do what was pleasing to God. So it's based upon that, that he takes this step of faith, that he identifies himself with the people of Israel, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. And he esteems the reproach of Christ, it says, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. That is... Um, something that you could only do by faith. Because what Moses is doing is he's trading the visible for the invisible. He's trading the tangible for the intangible, in a sense. You know, everything is right there in front of him. He can see all of this, all of the glory of Egypt, and all of the, the possible um, you know, material blessings that would come to him as a result of that. He, he can see all of that, but he can't see The, uh, the spiritual benefits, all he sees when he looks over to the Israelites are people who were enslaved. But of course, he believed in the promises of God. He believed that, that what God said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, he believed that those things were true, even though he couldn't see uh, before him any indicator that would... Uh, Say that, you know, that, that is going to be a reality at some time. It was by faith that he was able to do that. And so the same is true with us. We endure like Moses did by seeing the invisible, we progress by seeing the invisible. We, we advance in our journey with the Lord by not looking at what we can see. But by looking more at what God has declared and believing that, and then acting upon that, And so each one of these cases here becomes an example for us, and a person to emulate, a person to, to you know seek to model ourselves after. And so he goes on. He mentions the the Passover here and the sprinkling of blood and he mentions the Red Sea just kind of compacting together all of those events that happened through the life and the ministry of Moses. But then he moves from Moses and he moves on in the history, he comes to Joshua now, and he comes to the children of Israel entering into the promised land. They come out of the wilderness. They're there for 40 years. They come out of the wilderness led by Joshua. They come through the Jordan River. And the first thing they're confronted by is the walled city of Jericho. And that walled city is essentially the, a border that they are, uh, at least as far as the Canaanites are concerned, they're not gonna pass <laughs> into the promised land. Uh, that wall is there to keep them out. Now, for them, it would have been quite easy to look at that as an insurmountable ob- obstacle, to just say, okay, you know, we, we can't go into the promised land. Look at, look at this massive walled city. How are we going to scale this? How are we going to in any way, you know, overcome this obstacle? Because remember, this wasn't like an army. They weren't uh, an organized military machine. They were just people who had lived in the wilderness for 40 years. So how are they going to inherit the promises? How are the walls of Jericho going to uh, be removed? How is that obstacle going to be removed? Well, he tells us it was by faith that it happened. They, again, they didn't look at what was seen. They looked at the unseen. They... Believed in the the promises of God. They could look back and they could reflect upon the the history, how God had brought um, their ancestors out of Egypt, how he had brought them through the Red Sea, how he had sustained them in the wilderness, how he had uh, dried up the Jordan River. And so now, you know, here's another obstacle before them. What do they do? Well, they have faith, they have trust that God can do and will do uh, the impossible. And, you know, the the life of a Christian is really, uh, you know, th- this is what it's like. We're, in so many ways, we're um, constantly facing situations where the deck is stacked against us all the time. You know, I have often felt <laughs> like this. Um, I, and I, you know, sometimes in my, my prayer times, I would express this to the Lord. I, I felt like a fighter with both hands tied behind his back. So it's like, you know, Lord, you've called me to fight this battle, but, but I've got both hands tied behind my back. You know that, I mean, you can't fight that well with both hands tied behind your back. And yet oftentimes that's the, a that's the situation for us. We're, we're outnumbered so often. We're outresourced so often. You know, but here's the thing. When you look at the, the biblical record, you find that this is always the way God has done it. God has always put himself in the position of um, being the underdog, so to speak. He's always put his people in the position of being the underdog. Why does he do that? Well, he does it so that he can demonstrate his power. He does it so that we can see that he is faithful and that, you know, he really is the one who is at work. And so, whether it be the walls of Jericho or the deliverance of Rahab, or or any of these other things that he goes on to mention, we see a similar kind of thing in every single case. The odds are stacked against the people of God, but the people of God end up victorious, but they end up victorious because of their confidence in the Lord, because of their trust in the Lord. So for the people that are the original recipients of the letter, they're feeling right now that everything's kind of stacked against them, they're feeling like, well, wait a second. You know, where, where are the, where's the fulfillment of the promises of, of Jesus the Messiah sitting upon the throne of David? How come that hasn't happened yet? And and why is it that we're being ostracized? Why is it that we're we're being excluded from the community? Why is it that we're actually suffering persecution? And they're beginning to waver. They're beginning to to falter. They're beginning to consider turning away. But the author comes back and reminds them, no, this is. This is the way it always has been. It's always been like this for the people of God. It always looks like God's people are on the verge of extinction. It always looks like they're, they're right there, you know, just about to lose the game. But it's when that happens that God steps in. You know, somebody put it this way. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. God likes to build the drama. You know, he likes, to, he, he likes to let things get pushed to the limit before he steps in. Now, you know, I think most of us would rather that he didn't do that. You know, just, we don't need to go that far with it. Let's just, you know, let's just nip it in the bud before, you know, it develops and gets to be too, too much of a problem. But you know when you when you again when you look back at these stories in Scripture, you find that no God, you know, He tends to always build the drama. You think of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, and you remember they, you know, Pharaoh finally lets them go, and they go out and they march forth in victory, and they make their journey, and then they they come to this place of, of resting. They they set up camp. And they set up camp with two mountain ranges on either side of them and the sea at their back. And it just looks like a good place to camp. But what happens? Pharaoh hears that they're kind of in a trap. They've got the sea at their back, mountain ranges on their side. Pharaoh says, this is the perfect setup. We can come in and we can destroy them. And you wonder, okay, well, why did, why did God lead them there? Because the Lord led them to that spot. Well, to build the drama so that he could exercise his power and destroy the uh, opposing army of Pharaoh. And that's so often what he does with us as well. He, He lets the drama build. He lets everything develop and he calls us to trust him through that. And so we see it over and over and over again in history. So he references Jericho. He references the harlot Rahab. And then in verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So these same kinds of stories, like I said, they just happen over and over and over and over again. Gideon is is such a classic story. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Gideon. I think it's Judges in the sixth chapter where, you know, God appears to Gideon. He's like, like the least likely candidate to be a deliverer for the nation and he knows it himself. And so when the angel says, you know, appears to him and says, oh, mighty man, you know, go in this your strength and deliver Israel. He's like, okay, you got the wrong address. You're talking to the wrong person. It's certainly, I'm not a mighty man. And he says, he says, look, my... I belong to the smallest tribe, and my family, my father's family, were pretty insignificant people in our tribe. But the angel insists no, go in this your strength and deliver Israel. And, you know, Gideon just. He has a hard time believing that this is really going to happen, so he goes through this test where he has a fleece, this thing of wool, and he says, Lord, if you're really calling me, you know, I'm going to put it out, and if, if, uh, you know, if you really want me to go, then you know, let it be wet one time, let it be dry another time, and, and sure enough, just as he asked, you know, God, um, God gives him the confirmation. But then when, when everything is finally settled and Gideon realizes that you know, yes, God is indeed calling me to do this, he gathers an army together and um, it seems like a, you know, a pretty substantial army, but in comparison to the Midianites, it's a very small army. But God looks at it and he says, your army is too big he's got 32,000 men and God says, you, you have way too many men. So he says, tell everybody that's afraid, everybody that's just recently married, everybody that just doesn't want to go to war, tell them it's okay, you can stay home. And so they said, fine. And you know, they ended up with an army of about 10,000. And you know what God said, Gideon, your army's still too big. And so God narrows it down, and he narrows it down to 300. 300? So it just makes no sense whatsoever. But God said this. He said, you know, because Gideon's saying, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. But God said this. He said, you know, I know Israel. I know if I gave you the victory with the 10,000 or the 20,000, you would think that it was you who did it. So I'm going to make it so ridiculous that nobody will have any question about how this battle was won. And that's what he did. He took the 300. Now, the author says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon. I just told you about Gideon. But, uh, <laughs> but those are the kinds of stories. But it's the same thing once again. Like I said, it's just over and over again, it's the same thing. God's people are outnumbered. God's people are out-resourced. God's people appear to be the underdog. But in the end... God wins. You know, I I even look at some of the things happening today in the culture. I look at some of the things happening in the nation, many things happening around the world. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of battles going on in a lot of different areas. And I think there are times when the enemy gloats because he has apparently won a battle in certain areas, and, you know, people would even say today that, well, you know, in the United States, Christianity is on the decline, and progressivism is on the rise, and, you know, humanism and, and all of that, you know, is becoming the dominant view, and, you know, Christianity is being beat back. I mean, some people want to, you know, beat back the influence of Christianity. And so they're, in, in a sense, what they're saying is, you know, we're winning this battle, But, you know, the reality is the war has already been won. And God has won the war. Jesus won that war on the cross. And although we might appear to be losing certain battles here and there, uh, the fact of the matter is, in the end, God will be victorious, even though still today we, as God's people, and, you know, obviously there are other places where it would even seem more blatantly obvious that the the people of God are are losing the battle. Looking over into the Middle East where, you know, Christians have been driven out of their ancient homeland. Many of them have been brutally murdered and all, you know, somebody looks on it and says, wow, you know, look at what's happening here. And of course, those who are perpetrating those crimes, they would attribute their success to the, the, the greatness of their God over the Christian God even. But the fact of the matter is, Uh, the war's already been won. And this is nothing new. Everything has always kind of come along this same sort of way where God allows us to be seen as weak and inferior and lacking abilities and resources, but he comes in and brings the victory. So it's through faith that... He goes on here now in verse 33, he says, they subdued kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life. Now in this first section here, he talks about the the victories that resulted from the faith of the people. And everything that he just mentioned would, would manifest itself um, as, as a victory. You know, eventually there would be a victory that would be seen. So the victory would be seen through the subdued kingdoms, through the obtaining of the promises, through the stopping of the mouths of lions. And, you know, if you know your Old Testament well enough, you know he's just kind of marching his way through the Old Testament. And even though he's not giving the specific details, he's talking about events that are recorded for us all the way through the Old Testament. So Daniel is the one that stopped the mouths of lions. Remember, he was thrown into the lion's den, but the lions didn't uh, overcome him. Uh, Quench the violence of fire. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were thrown in the furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, but they were not harmed by the flames. So he, he goes through this list, and everything here in the first portion of it, it their, their faith results in a visible, tangible victory. After they they go through this uh, you know season of challenge, but it results in a visible, tangible victory. Now, for all of us, probably that's what we always hope for in regard to the outcome of our faith. We're we're always hoping and believing and trusting and and thinking that you know well if our faith is strong and if we're really believing God, then the end result is going to be. The, the, the result that we desire, we're going to have a victory. We're going to have a visible victory. We're going to, people are going to see that, you know, look, they trusted God and, and this, is, this is what happened. And, and you know, it's, it's a positive outcome. But listen to what he goes on to say. He says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. So here's the other side of it. You see, it doesn't the victory of faith doesn't always show itself in this present life in some visible way, some tangible way where we can see, look, you know, look at this person trusted God, this person had faith, and and look how God delivered them from that. It doesn't always work that way. And it's important for us to realize that. Uh, We had somebody call in this week to the radio Uh, broadcast. And they, this was the question. And the woman was very honest. She said, you know, my faith is being rocked. My faith is being shaken because of what I see happening to Christians all around the world. How can, how can it be that God is allowing for his people to suffer the way some of these people are suffering? And I took her right to this passage and I read this passage to her over the air. I said, look, we've got to realize, we've got to remember that faith always brings a victory, but the victory doesn't always look the same. And sometimes the victory is not seen in the present, it will be seen in the future. And so faith is not only to result in visible progress or prosperity, but sometimes Faith just enables us to endure affliction and even succumb to some extent, at least visibly, to that affliction. But but nevertheless, that's not the end of it. There's a bigger picture. There's an eternal picture. And this is what we have to get in our minds because we're, we're always thinking in the here and now. We're thinking in the present. We're thinking about what is uh, right in front of us. And, and quite often, we're not thinking about the bigger picture of eternity. But he puts these, these others right alongside of those who did these tremendous things by faith and saw the positive results. He puts those who were tortured, they didn't accept deliverance, meaning that they were executed, And others had uh, trials of mocking, scourging, and so forth. And, you know, as we read through the scriptures, we see that this is indeed what has happened many times over. You can't read the New Testament without seeing the context is so often a context of tribulation and suffering and affliction. You know, somebody said this years ago, and I think it's true. They said the promise of the Old Testament is prosperity. The promise of the New Testament is adversity. Now, there is out there, there are those voices that would say to us, you know, if you're a real man or woman of faith, that's going to be evidenced by material prosperity. It's going to be evidenced by uh, success in life—it's going to be evidenced by, um, you know, health, and you know that—that's the indicators that you're a, 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 you know, really a person of faith. We we can see that you're a man or a woman of faith because because we see a, a blessing, and it's material is the way people are referring to that, but. That's not a New Testament idea. The New Testament is full of examples of people who are materially suffering and physically suffering with sometimes health issues, sickness, but sometimes with sufferings like we're reading about here, mockings and scourgings and imprisonments and things like that. Because you see, the message of the New Testament is that we are pilgrims and sojourners here in this world. Well, our our citizenship is in heaven. And if anybody should have an eternal perspective, it should be us, because that's the perspective that the New Testament is always pushing us toward. And so, like I said, with the woman that called, I just pointed her to to these verses here and reminded her that you can very much be living by faith and your faith can be absolutely genuine and, and, and a powerful faith, but it doesn't translate necessarily into what we would look at and say, well, that was a great victory. But it is a great victory because it's a victory on the larger level of eternity rather than the, the smaller level of the present situation. And so he says concerning them, that these all, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us, therefore, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the writer, he's done this two or three times now, but he keeps going back to this. He's constantly pointing back to the men and women of faith from the Old Testament period. He's reminding them over and over again that their understanding of God, the revelation that they had of God, even the experience that they had with the Lord was inferior to what the new covenant has brought us. And so he's arguing this way. He's saying, look, if these people whose understanding of God was was limited in comparison to yours, if these people whose, in many ways, their experience with God was limited compared to ours, because we have the indwelling of the Spirit. They did not have the indwelling of the Spirit. We know the full story. They only knew part of the story. If they had such faith How is it that your faith is wavering? We need to to learn an example from them. We need to take uh, from them uh, a lesson about trusting God. These, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, but we have. And so, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... The great, the great cloud of witnesses are all the people that he's referring to, that he's, that he's been looking back on. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And since that is the case, we are to lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. And here's the key word. We are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance. That's been a major theme all the way through the epistle. Perseverance, endurance, patience. the Christian life is a long distance run it 's not a sprint, and we the sooner we learn that, the better off we will be it 's a long distance run it 's a long distance run with plenty of obstacles. Paul referred to uh, having fought the good fight finished the uh, finished his race or finished his course is another translation, and the word there refers to an obstacle course. And, you know, that's what the Christian life is like. It is like a long-distance race with all kinds of obstacles. How do we navigate that? Well, we've got to have endurance. We've got to know right up front that, you know, this is a a long-distance race, and we've got to be uh, really, you know, just... Committed to the fact that that's what it is. You know, for anyone who does anything, you know, athletically, um, stretching, or you know, something where you you know you're, you're really having to uh, exert effort, um, you know that so much. Of your ability to persevere through whatever it is that you're doing, you know, so much of it is in. It starts in the mind. You know, if you if you step into something with the mentality like oh, I, oh, I'm never going to do this, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to f- finish this course. I'm never going to succeed at this. You know, you probably won't. That's kind of the way it works. But if you come at it. And even before you get to the physical part of it, you just come out and you say, you know, I, I, I'm gonna do this. It's a, the, the endurance element, so much of it is, I mean, part of it is physical, but there's another part of it that is very much a mental thing. And spiritually, there's a, there's a parallel there. If we are in this race, this race of faith, so to speak, and we're not even considering the fact that it's a long-distance race, it's a race that needs endurance, and we are thinking in terms of, you know, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna run this race and finish it, then and when, when, when it starts to get challenging, when it becomes more difficult, that will be the time when the temptation will become uh, great to just back off, to pull out, to give up. But he says, look at this great cloud of witnesses. Look at these people. And, and you know, he's going to go on as we go further in the text, and we're, we'll pick up next week in verse two, but he's going to go on to kind of rebuke them a little bit. Because what he's really going to say to them is, look, you know, I mean, to put it in the modern vernacular, he's going to kind of say, you know, you guys are a little bit wimpy. <laughs> compared to the people that I've been uh, talking to you about, I mean, look at look at what they went through, and you're getting a little bit of pushback from the uh, the unbelievers, and and you're kind of ready to throw in the towel. Uh, look at look at what these others went through, but the the primary example he gives is Jesus, and we'll, we'll look at that as well as we come to the next one. But you know, this is just. A fact that we have to understand that part of the Christian life, as we mentioned previously, part of it is persevering through affliction. Part of it is that we are going to face obstacles and difficulties. And the important thing is that we keep going. How do we keep going? Well, he says, look at look at the witnesses. Let them be an inspiration to you. You know, Paul in in Romans 15, four, Paul says, concerning the Old Testament, he says, the things that are written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. All of these people that we just read about, they were real people, just like us. They had real lives, just like we have. They experienced real anguish, just like we do. Soul anguish, heart anguish, physical pain, they, they, they knew it all just like we do. But he says, be encouraged by them, look to them. And, and that's one of the reasons why God gave us the written record is so we would know what God's people have experienced in the past and we could see how God intervened and worked in their lives and we could take heart and we could be encouraged and we could say, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna believe God like they did. I'm gonna trust God like they did. You know as I've said before let me remind you again we are the people today in this generation just like they were in their generation Hebrews 11 as I pointed out is not finished being written it's it's an open ended chapter that is still going on. As long as the church is on earth, Hebrews 11 will continue to be written. And so we can go all the way back like he does at this point. We can go all the way back to the biblical record and we can look at these, these individuals, the men and the women that are mentioned here, that are alluded to here. We can read their stories. We can see how God worked in their lives. And we need to take heart and believe and say, you know, this, I'm trusting God for this. And in some cases, the expectation is gonna be a full deliverance that's gonna manifest itself and God's gonna get the glory. In some other cases, it's gonna be, you know what, even if I suffer all the way through and I never see the victory this side of heaven, I know there's gonna be a victory that's gonna manifest itself uh, in the bigger picture of eternity. And we trust God for that. But let me just add this, that where they... Had this group of people that they could look back on. We have another 2,000 years of church history where we have numerous faith stories that we can also be encouraged from today. I've said this before, I I personally love and spend a a fair amount of time reading Christian biographies, biographies of men and women of faith, and uh, you know, who pioneered mission works and things like that. And I have benefited so much from the stories of how God has worked in the lives of other people. And that's, that's the purpose, really. You know, we're part of a body, we're part of a, a, a community, and the story of what God's doing in one person's life is, a, is an encouragement or a reminder of what he can possibly do in our lives as well. And so whether it's a biblical character like some of the ones that are mentioned here that we have all, you know, taken great encouragement and taken heart from their story and and the message in the biblical text, or it's some other person that we've read about in church history who, you know, experienced a certain thing, God uses those things as an encouragement to us, as a reminder to us. But again, let me just reiterate, we are the people today. There's a great cloud of witnesses. And guess what they're doing? They're kind of just looking down on us and like, well, how are they doing down there in the 21st century AD? <laughs> you know, we were, we, they were here a long time ago maybe. But going through similar things, how, how are we doing today? Are we men and women of faith? Are we trusting God? Are we believing him like they did? That's what we need to do because like I said, the story's not over. There's still exploits to be done. There's still kingdoms to be subdued and promises to be obtained. And there's still fires to be quenched and lion's mouths to be shut and all of these kinds of things. They're they're still out there waiting to happen for the furtherance of the kingdom of God and for the uh, expanding of the testimony of his faithfulness. And we are a generation that gets to live it out. And let me just remind you as we close, I think it's so important today that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on what God is doing and not get distracted with what the devil is doing. I think there are far too many Christians, especially in this country, who are way too preoccupied with what the devil is doing and not at all really considering what God is doing. And you know how I know that that's true? Because so often when I'm listening to people talk and I'm even hearing sermons preached, it's all about how bad everything is. It's all about how dark it's becoming and how horrible it is and all of that. Well, you know what that is? That's really just a broadcasting of of everything the devil's doing. I mean, you probably have noticed, I just, I'm not doing that. If you want to get depressed, you go home and watch the news. You get on the internet, you can get depressed there. If you come here, I'm not gonna give you the news report. I'm gonna give you God's report. (laughs) This is what God's doing. I don't care what you know, really I, I don't I don't really care so much about what the devil's doing. Because despite all of that, God is working. And this is a critical, I think this is a critical time. I really do. And I'm, I'm not denying that the, the, the world is dark and it's, it's depressing. And you know, that's all a reality. I know that. But at the same time, we have to recognize, you know, this is the way the world's always been. But God has always had his people right in the thread of the whole thing shining forth his light. And they were all doing it the same way. And it's the way that we need to do it as well. They were doing it by faith. They were believing that whatever was happening around them, that wasn't their problem. They were believing, man, God is at work and I'm going to connect with God and what he's doing. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe him. And, and I'm going to see what, what the Lord will do. And you know, I, I mean, sometimes I think we, in our minds, you know, we get so carried away with like, you know, things that are just beyond us, things that are just bigger than us, you know, like we got to save the nation or something like that. You know, those there are certain things that are just beyond us. Those are in God's uh, hands. Those are His responsibility. But I think you know what? You know what we can do. We we might not be able to do that, but you know, we can we can save a little kid. We could bring a little kid into our home and rescue them from the ravages of the world by adopting, or, or, or something like that. You remember that story? I I heard it recently. Somebody told it. I, you know, about the kid. There's a bunch of uh, starfish up on that were washed up onto the shore. Uh, thousands of them were washed up on the shore and all lying there, just kind of, you know, dying. And there's a, there's a little kid that's going along the story goes and he's he's just picking one up you know and he's throwing them out one at a time and somebody says to him, oh, you're never going to make any difference here you know you you know there's so many you're you're never going to uh, save all these and the kid just says well yeah that's true but I'm saving this one you know and he throws it out there And you know that that's it as well We can't save a nation we can't save the world, but we can save a person. We can save one person at a time. And God, of course, can use us to save more, more than one. And God could take that one person that he used you to bring to him, and he could raise that person up. But you see, it's faith that believes that. It's faith that is committed to that. It's faith that says, you know, I, I, I'm not really concerned about what, what the enemy's doing. I, I wanna look at what God's doing and I wanna be engaged in what God's doing. And even if it leads to outcomes that are less than uh, ideal as far as we're concerned, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about... Um, persecution coming, it's on its way. And maybe it is. I mean, it is already, but you know, maybe it's, it's on its way in a greater way. But it didn't stop this great cloud of witnesses that live before us. And may God help us that it doesn't stop us either. That we become, for this generation, those that by faith, whether it's subduing kingdoms or working righteousness or obtaining promises or it's trials of mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment, whatever the case, that in the end, we persevere, we endure, and that God is glorified. God, help us to that end. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we thank you that As much as there's tons of evidence all around us that the enemy is just having a field day with humanity, Lord, there's just as much evidence that you are at work and you are doing great things and you are saving people and you're transforming lives and your work is carrying on. And Lord, we thank you that it is for such a time as this that we are here It's no accident that we're living at this time. And so, Lord, we want to be men and women of faith in our generation. We want to be like Moses. We want to be like Joshua. We want to be like these others that are mentioned here and many others. And so, Lord, help us in these days Help us to see him who is invisible and to know that you are at work and to believe that you're at work and by faith to yield ourselves to you that you might work in us and through us for your eternal glory and your eternal purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.